this long weekend. I don't know if you have your cell phones out. If you do, uh, please turn them off. Only mine's allowed to be on. But um, who would I call if I won the lottery? First of all, I have to start buying tickets. I hear you have to buy tickets if you're going to win. So that maybe that's why I haven't won. But secondly, who would you call? I want you to know that sociological studies are being performed with lottery winners to find out what their normal activity uh, methods will be. And sure enough, they're falling into certain categories. Um, one person you don't call is your cousin Fast Eddie, okay? Uh, or another person you don't call is, is your debtors and say, hey, I come into a lot of money because suddenly the interest charges or the penalty charges are gonna go way up. But a lot of people in the very first moments think, who do I call? And it's not family members. It's lawyers and financial advisors. So, you know, I have a, a clergy advantage here that does my finances. I'm about ready to fire them. No, I'm actually about ready to use them. Uh, and uh, as I make that call, if I won, I'd say, tell me, what do I do? And to lawyers, they're the ones who usually figure out, do you take it all out now or do you take it out, you know, over the 20-year period that they offer? You have all sorts of options, and you have many people to call. Some people then call a, uh, it's been uh, discovered that they call a travel agent or someone who can help them get out of town <laughs> so that all their friends won't be knocking on their door. Oh, you wouldn't believe the bad luck I've had this week. I, could you loan me some, or the, or, or the other one, uh, Look, I, I know you've just come into some money, and I have got this surefire scheme that's going to triple your money this week. <laughs> These are the people that you try to avoid so they get out of town. Now, we are in that uh, point in the Gospel of Mark where we are looking at some very fortunate people. They haven't won the lottery. I don't know if King Herod ran one. But, but they, they come across Jesus, and it is the time of their lives. It is a moment that changes everything about them. We just looked in, at the end of Mark chapter 4 about the disciples on a sail trip at night when it's supposed to be very calm, crossing the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, it's about seven miles across and 23 miles wide. Uh, the other way around, okay. But, but as they cross it, they hit an unexpected storm. And Jesus stands and he says just two uh, Greek words, which translated is, be quiet and be muzzled. And in your translation, it might, it might say, hush, be still. And with just those two words, all of nature changes immediately. And there are 12 disciples and other boats along with them that are going, what just happened here? What is going on? And they ask this very wise question that everybody should be asking, not just here in church, but everywhere around the world. Who is this man? Who is this that even the winds and obey him? Well, now we're ready for the next one because we're looking at the five major miracles. There are more, but there's five that are sort of bunched together that knock your socks off. And, and now we're ready for the second one, and it is a stunner. Because he restores a broken man's sanity. So let me go with you to Mark chapter 5. 
And we're going to look at uh, the first few verses. Uh, the subtitle for mine is called A Healing of a Demon-Possessed Man. But it's not just your ordinary demon-possessed man. This guy is really in trouble. Okay. They went across the lake, again, Jesus seems to spend a lot of his time commuting, to the region of the Gerasenes, which would be the, the east end, southeast end uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And more than that, it's where the Jews don't live, but the Gentiles do. Okay. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained, hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This man is in trouble. I know that some of you are saying, well, you know, demon possession then is nothing more than mental illness now. And if you believe that, the devil is smiling at you. He's thinking, gotcha. Do not mess with possession. It is marked by extraordinary physical strength, irrational, immoral, and evil thoughts and actions. And as we see here, it leads to self-destructive behavior. So it says that night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, meaning he was in misery. He knew it. He wasn't in charge of his body. And he cut himself with stones. Uh, if you remember that famous scene in, in uh, Frankenstein where the townspeople band together and run Frankenstein out of town, I think they got it from this setting. The demon-possessed man is driven from the local villages. They're called Decapolis, meaning ten cities. He's driven from the lo local villages because they are afraid of him. He is going to hurt their children. So he spends his days roaming in the countryside, eventually, hopefully, according to the people of Decapolis, to kill himself. This is not depression. This is not bipolar. This is not insanity. It is possession, demonic possession. Now, yes, maybe you've seen it faked in some, sitting, in, in some settings, uh, and that could be true, but not here. And the whole region fears this man. But by the end of this account, they're going to fear something else even more. So what we have here is a duel that's going on. Deity and demons are, duel, are dueling together. And this is what happens when Jesus gets off the boat. It says, when he saw Jesus, the demon-possessed man, from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of the voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of God Most High? Well, his disciples, after they retreat and disembark, this man apparently is running towards them. So let me read the rest of that passage. I just did verses 6 and 7. It says in verse 8 then, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. There's a duel going on, you see. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. The power of Satan versus the power of Jesus Christ, son of God almighty, 
Guess who wins? Jesus has the authority over nature by the calming of the storm, and he also has the authority over evil, over the devil and his underlings. But this possessed man, as he sees Jesus coming, he knows exactly the true identity of Jesus. And he calls him by his name, Son of the Most High God. He runs and falls on his knees before him, like everyone eventually will. And he attempts to alter this, this spiritual confrontation by speaking Jesus' title. The idea here is, in, the, in, in biblical times, if you could call someone by their name, by their title, you had some authority or power or influence over that, that confrontation. So by speaking Jesus' true name, he is saying, maybe I can alter what you are doing. But notice what he says. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Translated, that means, mind your own business, Jesus, and let me mind mine in, in this man. Or let us mind ours in this man. For Jesus had said to him, come out of him, you uh, evil spirit. So from the moment Jesus lands on this distant shore and glimpses this man running to speak to him, uh, he is giving out words of exorcism. Come out of him, come out of him. It's written in a tense that, that may be meaning he's saying it several times. And just as Jesus has titles, so do the demons. And so when Jesus asks for the names of the, uh, the name of the demon, the response is legion, meaning this man is a group home for many evil spirits. The challenge, therefore, only increases for Jesus. Do you remember all those early kung fu movies? Oh, come on, Bruce Lee. You remember those, didn't you? Guys, you all watched them, didn't you? You remember how this small Asian man could walk into a bar filled with oversized, overweight, over-inebriated, drunk, white rednecks, and they would try to, to threaten him and say, get out of here or we're going to teach you a lesson. And he just all by himself eliminates them, puts them all on the ground. Picture that in what is happening at this moment. Picture that as Jesus says, oh, a bigger challenge. You see, he comes to this spiritual confrontation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they come through the power of Satan. It is like bringing pea shooters to a gunfight. We know who's going to win. But through this, understand that something amazing happens in terms of, once again, we can answer, who is this man? Not just who the winds and the waves obey, but who is this man after we see God at work in this situation? So the demons understand they, they are outgunned. They don't have a chance. And so they begin to beg Jesus, send us, it says in verse 12, among the pigs and allow us to go into them. Let's read verses 12 to, uh, I think, about 15 here. Uh, <clears throat> a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out, meaning of the man, and went into the pigs. Now, 
The Bible has humor if you're looking for it. And this is funny. You're not laughing. <laughs> I don't know how to... Look, you're kind to me when I tell bad jokes. Be kind to God now. This is funny, okay? And, and, and please, let him amuse you here. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out of the man and went into the pigs. Ah, release. You know, it's fine. The, 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 um, what, what, what the demons are saying, well, you know, at least we weren't cast out of the area. But guess who wins? The herd of about 2,000 in number rushed down a steep bank into the lake and were drowned. I love that. I love that. He shows the mercy and he still kills them. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he grants their wish and they're annihilated. I, I, it's, okay. No jokes. I think this is enough. All right. Isn't that amazing? And um, so uh, historically, I just want you to know, if you were to go to, the, uh, to take a tour of the Holy Land and you, you took one of those uh, tour boats on the Sea of Galilee, that on the southeast side of that big lake uh, is a town called, not Gerasi, but Kirza. And historically, about two miles south of this region, uh, there is a, uh, a cliff about 40 feet in height that just empties into the sea. More than that, about another mile south of this village or town or city, is a, a region of caves right on the shore going up the, uh, the hillside. And uh, those historically were used as tombs in ancient times. Everything that, all these little details that are mentioned here, uh, you can still find pretty much today. Uh, but it's not so much the history as the impact. When this whole situation is over, and I imagine the disciples again are going, what just happened here? There's another group of people asking, what just happened here? Let me tell you who they are. Okay, I, I want you to take a, not a selfie, but a snapshot of, of what has just happened at that place. And understand all the people involved and all the uh, images that, that are, that, you know, in terms of uh, this one moment in time. Jesus is next to this man, and this man is suddenly calm, number one. His disciples are surrounding them both. Then up on the cliff are a bunch of swine herders who are suddenly unemployed. The pigs are floating upside down in the lake, and the herdsmen are stunned together saying, what just happened? Because they had no clue what was going on down below. They are terrified and they run back to the village telling their story to the village people there and, uh, and, and that uh, uh, the, uh, this Jesus had expelled uh, the demons in this possessed man. And, and so the village uh, residents, they're probably thinking, not again. This guy, wherever he goes, he's causing trouble. And they band together, just like that scene in Frankenstein, and, and they say, we're going to put an end to this now. This ends now. But when they get there, what they see frightens them more than the account of the pig herders. 
Because what they are seeing is what I call holy restoration. This is not just a healing. This is a restoring. So it says in verse 14, when they came to Jesus, all the townspeople and the, and the herdsmen with them, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, look at this, sitting there, not running around, cutting himself, dressed and in his right mind. Uh-oh, you're normal. Now I'm afraid. My children are like that when they talk to me. Dad, you're normal again. <laughs> Don't get normal. Just be your, you know, okay. So um, they are afraid of the healing. That's funny too. We are creatures who can be afraid of just about everything. We're afraid of the good things that happen. They are totally unprepared. The demoniac is healed and restored. And restored to what? It's not just a normal life. He is restored to the original dignity that he has of being created in the image of God and which Satan stole away. And he's also restored to his eternal destiny. Friend, that is restoration. He is dressed. He converses. Uh, probably with an educated Harvard accent. Uh, he follows a dialogue and he can logically think. He's, he can both ask and answer questions. Now, I don't know if you've ever glimpsed uh, certain situations that cause a sense of awe in you. Uh, when I walk up to the rim of the Grand Canyon and I look down, not only do my knees shake, but I say, that is amazing. When I have been on top of Pike's Peak and look over those uh, purple waves of grain, as, it, as it's called, uh, uh, Purple Mountains Majesty, you know what I mean. Amber waves of grain, okay. <laughs> when I look over that, it is awesome to think that I'm above 14,000 feet and looking down. When I'm in Yosemite and I stand at the edge uh, of, uh, or at the bottom, at the foot of Half Dome, and look at that sheer cliff Going up. It is awesome. The townspeople see for themselves this once naked, uncontrollable, and dangerous man, and now what? He is fully restored. But instead of praise for the one who healed him, they are afraid, very afraid. The dread they had towards a possessed man is now only multiplied towards the one who restored him to his true humanity. We're, we're looking at anthropology and we're looking at Christology. Every week we're in the Gospel of Mark because the two are so clear to us. How would you have responded? I mean, you expect to see a demon-possessed man and you're used to that. Now you're seeing, how would you have responded in your humanity? So it says, then the people began to plead with Jesus. Please, Jesus, leave us. What idiots. Jesus, with that power, please stay with us. <laughs> so they asked Jesus to, reach, uh, to leave, to return to the other side of the lake. And Jesus says, hey, okay, that's what you want. That's what you'll get. He does not desire their fear. Right now, he's not even desiring their worship. He just wants their trust. 
that he is really the son of God and not just another rabbi they're hearing stories about from the other side of the lake. Now, if you were that exorcism, at, you know, attending that exorcism, if you were there, if you were in that snapshot, I want to say you fall into one of, I guess I'd call it three categories of humanity. And this is where we'll look at how we form our anthropology and our Christology. Either you would be one of the townspeople, terrified, so, so full of fear that you would say, Jesus, please leave us. Or you'd be one of the disciples, say, wow, who is this man? Now even Satan obeys him with multiple uh, evil spirits within this man. But there's also a third person, the healed, restored, eternally grateful, previously demon-possessed man. Which category do you fall into? Let's, let's sort of walk through what each of these is like. Because whatever category you fall into, and you're probably into one of the three this morning, it will influence your anthropology and your Christology. Anthropology, the study of humankind and therefore human nature. Christology, the study of Jesus of Nazareth. If you place yourself in what I call a secular worldview, then what we have looked at is a fairy tale or a fantasy or that demon-possessed man was really faking it the whole time. Because, you see, there is nothing supernatural going on. There is no proof that there is a God. Uh, worse than that, there, there's nothing beyond this material world. So your Christology, how you look at Jesus, is uh, you would have to be looking him at him. Well, yeah, he's an historical figure. He did some great teaching, but the miracles had to be fables or frauds. His death had to be an execution, and his resurrection only a myth. And somewhere, if you have that secular worldview, somewhere lie the bones of Jesus waiting to be discovered. And then that man will be revealed as just another man. A great one, but a man. Your secular anthropology is trumping and influencing your Christology. You were stuck in a material universe and you have no answers. You have no answers for how the universe got here. You have no answer of how life got here, of how humanity got here. You have no answers. You have theories that have yet to be proven. Now, if you are a disciple, then understand that you are awestruck. This is just another account that helps you to solidify in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. He's shown it several times. This is the second of his greatest miracles, that he holds the power of nature in his hand and he has the ultimate authority over Satan in his hands. And you remember this event and everything about it. And you praise the risen Jesus every time you recall it. You see, your Christology is trumping and influencing your anthropology. You see Jesus as God's son and you have this event and this event and this event and this event to say, okay, he, he, he must be out of the ordinary because look at all that he's done. 
He is the Son of God, therefore he is out of the realm of normal humanity. And Peter makes that great discovery and blurts it out in chapter 8, just a few chapters from now. You believe Jesus, who he, you know, who he, uh, is who he claims to be, and you have placed your trust in him as a follower of Jesus. You believe in him, and you find that your life as you follow him is full of, uh, has more purpose, more joy, more love, because you're attached to him. And your anthropology is being shaped by the supernatural truth that Jesus has offered to you a spiritual relationship with God the Father that you've never had before. And you experience a supernatural relationship that science will never be able to measure. But now what if, just what if, you are the former possessed dwelling place of multiple demons? What if your body acted as the group home for a legion of demons? What if you find yourself acting like a real human being for the first time in your memory? What if you watch the neighbors who drove you out of town plead with the one who healed you to leave the area and never come back? You see, your Christology is magnificent. Why? But not only is your Christology correct, but it is experientially verifiable. Here's what I was, here's who I am now. And every time you look in the mirror, every time you have a conversation with a live human being and not a corpse, you understand, I have been delivered. I am now fully human once again, restored to the dignity of the image that God gave me. More than that, I know my destiny is achieved by being around him. The more I'm around him, the more not, now I, I won't just experience true humanity, but I'll know why I'm on this planet. So, of course, with apologies to the last election, uh, Jesus gets in the boat and, and uh, uh, it says this. Uh, the demon-possessed man was saying, I'm with him. I'm with him. Well, that makes sense. Of course, who would you find yourself wanting to spend time with but the person who restored you? And, uh, and so he looks like, okay, the rest of his life is shaped out there. But if you imagine this, this uh, now fully clothed, reasonable man getting in the boat and now just imagine an arm going across his chest and someone saying, not so fast. Just wait a minute. You see, for Jesus, he calls disciples to him for a specific purpose, and they're going to follow through on that. It's not that, you know, the discipleship pool is full. You can't take any more. That's not it at all. But to this person, he says, there is another plan for you. Not so fast. There's another plan for you. And here's what he says in verse 19. Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You see, to this point, when Jesus heals someone, he says to them, because it's usually in Judea, Shh, be quiet, don't tell anybody. And what do they do? They go tell everybody. Okay? They just can't stop it. Uh, and, and that gets him in trouble because his fame is rising and the religious, religious leaders 
trust in them is decreasing. So there's a jealousy going on. But for the first time, he heals somebody and he says, now, you're not following me, but instead you're going to go home to your family or, or to this region. And as you go home to this region, tell them what I've done for you, what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Part of the difference of, of, the, you know, of this unique command is what we call in uh, real estate location, location, location. This man is healed outside of the Jewish borders, and Jesus will not be spending much time here. So this healed and restored man from now on will be Jesus' representative in the place where Jesus will rarely go. And he has a simple message. Tell the people how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. Just very, very simple. 30 years ago, I was dealing with this passage, and someone challenged me to write a dramatic monologue where I would take on the role, and I've done that uh, several times. Uh, <clears throat> I think only once or twice here in the last 20 years, but I, I play the man. Uh, I dress in a three-piece suit because it's after, okay, not before. There's humor there, too. You didn't get it. Okay. <laughs> So uh, I, I, I play him after, and I, I, I say that uh, he, he suddenly got his sanity back, and he realized that, hey, there's a business here waiting for me to start. He gets into pork bellies and, <clears throat> and sells them on the Chicago tree. And it's a wonderful account of what could happen. But I want to say this. As he goes on the speaking tour, if he went to the synagogues in Judea, first of all, he wouldn't be allowed inside since he's a Gentile, but it would be hard for most of the synagogue people, just as it would be hard for most church people to believe this man. But he has a special mission to those who know him, to those who saw him running around naked, in self-mutilation and self-destructive behavior. He has a special mission and a special target group that he is aiming for. And that target group can hear his story and they'll go, uh-huh, preach it now. This is what he used to be. And look at this guy now. We knew him as an insane person. Now we see him fully restored. And that's exactly what it does. He says, so the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Let me go back to uh, this idea of demon possession before I get to what we're going to do about it. Uh, I realize that... Um, there's this sort of risky, fun, playful ways in which our culture has for generations say, well, I'm just going to dabble with this. I'm just going to play this, this game with this people. I'm going to... I have been in two situations where I have seen evil. Uh, <clears throat> I've talked to someone who has been delivered from Satan worship and I visited a home 
of a really weird lady that I'm pretty sure that's what she was doing. And I, I want to say this. I, I spent time with him, especially the one who, uh, who had been delivered. I, I learned what his motivations were. I, I, you know, I, I took notes. I, believe me, I remember what he was saying. But in the other one, I got out of there. And I would not go into her home again. Oh, I'd meet her for coffee somewhere. But I got out of there. Flee the evil one. Flee all evil. Look, uh, James says, what? He says, you know, even the demons believe in who Jesus is while the rest of humanity is still trying to figure it out. Even they believe, but they shudder. But I also understand they have great influence and great power. Don't mess with evil. Okay, now, uh, for the next season in this man's life, and as long as his countrymen would listen to him, he went from town to town doing exactly what Jesus says. I want to say this. I, I have a story, and you have a story, but next to this guy's story, my story's not too interesting. It's pretty simple. But I found out that my story talks to some people that maybe your story does not, and this man's story would not. Now, understand, if I was a parent and my child came to me and said, I want to go hear this demon-possessed man speak, I go, not in your life. My story revolves around a, an account of a very self-centered high schooler uh, at the age of 17, uh, I am not experiencing Satan's power over me in any way. Believe me, Satan's smiling because I'm just you know, totally engrossed in myself. But I find that as I speak about how Jesus became real to me at the age of 17, there are people at the age of 12 to 19 who are listening. Because I was going through the same things they were. I was being asked to make lifelong decisions that I had no reference points, no compass in my life. Well, what are you going to do for a career? I don't know. You want to get married? I don't know. You asked me all these big questions that I said, I think I'm going to be the first five foot eight white basketball guard in the NBA. living a delusional life. Uh, I had no reference points. So I get to tell people about not knowing what I was to do for the rest of my life, not knowing what my core values would be and what I would be giving up and what I would be getting and who I would worship. And I could also say, man, I, I, I understand compulsive behavior. I can do it. I've proven I can do it. And therefore, I know how easy it is to go from compulsive behavior to addictive behavior to self-destructive behavior. It's a very easy pathway. It's straight. You don't have to jump through a lot of hurdles. You just keep doing what you're doing. And I know how easy it might be for someone like me to go from compulsion to addiction to destruction. 
But God gave me a moral compass, and with that he gave me always a will and a way to continually say no to evil before it was too late. And I praise him for it. How about you today? Think through. What is it going on with you? You're going to fall into one of two things here. Because it either deals with how you're going to approach evil that's all around you. Or what your mission will be. That's what this passage speaks to. Are you walking in places where you see evil? Are you doing things now that seem enticing and a little naughty now, but you don't understand they're going to be destructive soon? Friends, you need prayer. Jesus tells us, lead us not into evil. I'm sorry, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's how we pray. It's part of the Lord's prayer. And how about you with your mission? With those who are willing to listen to God for what he has done and how he's shown mercy on you. Do you need courage, boldness to be better prepared? Do you understand that you are God's rep, Jesus' rep, to a people that only you may have contact with at this moment? Avoiding evil, being shunned or thrust into mission. Either of those speak to you right now? That's what happened to this man. Let's pray. Father, deliverance and mission. It may be going on right now in many lives. No matter what our age, no matter what we think we're entitled to do, you put that strong arm in front of us and say, not so fast. There's a mission for you. And right now, too, Lord, I really want to pray for people who either are around or involved in the occult. Lord, show them the danger and show them that Jesus not just has the power to deliver them, but the compassion. He is focused on you right now and wants to set you free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.